and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 200, The Invincible Lion Has Disappeared. Last time, at the end of December 1943, Pappy had gotten permission to lead fighter sweeps. That was the good news. The bad news was that the enemy hardly ever rose up anymore to accept the challenge. So Pappy incorporated some bombers to act as decoy. This worked brilliantly as he and others were able to bag a few more zeros. The problem was, at least for Pappy, that the press rushed him every time he landed to ask if he had yet broken the record for most downed enemy planes by a Marine pilot. This finally made Pappy snap, and his men were worried about him. They backed off, but the press did not. Pappy was exhausted and distracted, and nothing good ever comes from a pilot in such a state. And as covered last time, Pappy was going up twice a day, every day, to beat the record. He just needed one more kill to tie Rickenbacker and Foss, the current leading aces. But Mother Nature stepped in, and she does not care about human trifles. Basically, the monsoon season had started, and thus not every day was good for flying, which tore at Pappy's sanity. He simply needed to prove that he was the best, and this record would do just that. He just needed a few more days. The worsening weather was bad enough, but the Black Sheep's second tour was almost over. After that, it would be stateside, and few Japanese pilots could be found there. It was now or never. Which leads to the next part, and the story here is different depending on who you are listening to. On January 3, 1944, the black sheep were to go up again over Rabaul, and per Boynton, his friend Marion Carl, who was to lead that day, asked Pappy to take over, as this would increase his chance of getting a kill and tying the record. But after the war, Carl said that Pappy came to him the day before, January 2nd, and asked if he could lead. Either way, Carl, who was going to be there long after Pappy left for home, said yes. He was in no hurry. The other man clearly was. And so, on that day, January 3rd, 1944, Pappy was up with the other pilots, before the sun, searching for a workable plane. Boynton had to check a few out first, but eventually found one that suited him. Soon they were all in the air, flying over Bougainville's west coast. From there, it was on to Rabaul. At 8 a.m., flying at 22,000 feet, Pappy led his men into a descent as 70 enemy Zeros were spotted below. Between the Allied planes dropping and the Japanese planes rising, it was only a matter of seconds before they were within shooting range. Feeling lucky, Pappy picked his target and fired off a burst, though still 400 feet away. The target pilot, not suspecting this, flew into the bullets. Soon his plane was smoking. The man was forced to bail out. He had done it. He got his 26th kill, and his name was now going alongside the elites. But the air battle that day was not over. With the Japanese pilot still floating down, George Ashmum, Pappy's wingman that day, said, Gramps, you got a flamer! Now, the next part of this story is tricky, as it involves two different timelines. For most of the rest of the Allied pilots that day, 
they did not see Pappy score any more hits. But after the war, Pappy and his mate Frank Walton wrote up a supplemental action report about the same battle. Here's what Pappy said happened next. After Pappy's kill, a group of Zeros got behind him in Ashman. The two Americans evaded as best they could, but at one moment, Pappy's weaving put another Zero in front of him. Not looking a gift horse in the mouth, Pappy fired, and the man went down. He was now the sole ace with 27 kills. But after shooting up the plane, Pappy noticed his partner, Ashmum's plane, was smoking, and the Zeros were closing in on him. Pappy called out on the radio, but Ashmum did not or could not reply. At that same moment, Ashmum's plane was hit again. Seeing this, Pappy slowed down, got behind the plane that had just pumped bullets into Ashmum's plane, and let loose, scoring a solid hit. Within seconds, that plane was out of control. Pappy had just scored his 28th kill and was pulling away from Rickenbacker and Foss fast. But now the Zeros were focused on Boynton. But for once, the leader was too slow. Just after Pappy saw Ashmum's plane disappear into St. George's Channel off Rabau, he turned for home, knowing he could not do any more here. Problem was, the numerous Zeros around him had taken advantage of Pappy watching Ashmum go down by pumping some of their own bullets into his plane. Pappy dove down, hoping to lose some or all of his pursuers, but they were all over him, shredding his wings with their bullets, and some hit the plate right behind his head. This was going to be close. For all of the toughness of the Corsair and the man in it, a lucky strike had started a fire in the cockpit. As Boeing tried to figure out what to do, shrapnel from a 20mm shell hit his left leg and ankle, now squirting blood. That blood mixed in with the smoke. Then came more fragments that grazed his forearm and head. Pappy dropped even lower, hoping to shake the enemy, but they smelled smoke and stayed on him, which is when his main gas tank ignited. Now the flames and smoke in the cockpit were just too much. Boeington, knowing he had to eject, pulled on his ripcord and safety belt. Even this was a close call, as Pappy's parachute only opened up seconds before he hit the water. Pappy was now injured, bleeding, and coughing up smoke, all the while in the water about five miles from Cape St. George of New Ireland to the east of New Britain and Rabau. As the black sheep began to head home, it didn't take long for them to realize that their leader and his wingman, Ashmum, were not among them. That's when someone repeated a radio message they heard that said, I'm going to splash, but they couldn't tell who had said it, so they waited. And no matter how one felt about Pappy personally, he was the leader, he was their instructor, he was the guy who was going to make sure they all made it home safe. But where was he now? Word of the missing commander spread throughout the Pacific. Associated Press correspondent Fred Hampson wrote the next day, The war stood still for 100 pilots and 500 ground crewmen. Hampson also mentioned that Pappy had, on yesterday's sortie, shot down his 26th 
and record tying plane. Before that day, January 3rd, was over, Pappy's bunk was emptied and his belongings gathered up. As Lieutenant McClurg would write, we were in a state of shock. The invincible lion had disappeared. As stated, word of this got around the Pacific, and Allied pilots everywhere were worried. First, Pappy was the leader of the black sheep, but for some of the other pilots, their thought was, well, if the enemy can bag Boeington, what chance do I have? Perhaps, but Major General Ralph Mitchell, the commander of the Allied Air Forces in the Solomons, was looking at a wider picture. Yes, the pilots currently in the Pacific were right to be scared, but Mitchell was thinking of all the future pilots when he said, Not only was Boynton of immense value as a pilot, but his instructional ability was almost immeasurable. We need men like him to read the Bible to the kids back home who don't know it yet. And, of course, the media jumped on the bandwagon, with Time magazine saying that Pappy Boynton, tough and straight shooting, who had built up his black sheep into one of the best units out there, was missing in action. Next day, the Chicago Daily Tribune reported on the Navy Department informing Boynton's mother that he was MIA. Her response? I am confident he is all right, and he will show up somehow, somewhere. Like mother, like son. It will come as no surprise that, despite the body blow that Pappy's disappearance delivered to the men, that same day of January 3rd and the day after, the black sheep were up in the air, in their numbers, looking for any signs of what happened to their commander. Flying over New Ireland and Bougainville, the American pilots had one eye out for Pappy, but the other was out for any enemy, anything. Troops, boats, supplies, even a single camp. For if they spotted anything, it was destroyed. Shooting up minor enemy positions might not bring Boynton back, but it made the men feel better. Thus, as Lieutenant Walton said, up and down the coast of New Ireland and New Britain, shooting up barge gun positions, buildings, bivouac areas, strafing airfields, killing nip troops, cutting supply drums, trunks, and small boats. Whereas Lieutenant McClurg was more succinct. He said, if it moved, it got shot. And yet, despite their pain and anger, the men remembered Pappy's admonishments. For example, on January 6th, while still looking for Pappy, Lieutenant H.C. Johnson spotted a single zero flying below him over Rabaul. This was perfect. He would dive down and... Wait a minute. Hang on. What did Pappy tell us? If the target is perfect, there's a reason for it. Sure enough, Johnson looked behind him and saw two more zeros trying to close in fast. Fortunately, Johnson had spotted them far enough away to make a dive and get the hell out of there. By the end of January, rumors were rife about Pappy. He was dead. No, he was being held on Rabaul. No, he was on his way back to Tokyo. Or he had already arrived in Tokyo. But there was just one problem. No one had any proof to fit any of these rumors. That was good news of a sort. And that January 6th sortie that Johnson barely survived, well, 
that turned out to be the last day of the second tour for the Black Sheep. It was time for some R&R in Australia. Though the men went, there was little celebrating. And when they returned to their forward area, the question was, what happens to us now? For some of them, they knew the answer. They had done two full tours and would be heading home. As for the other men, they were desperately needed to fill gaps in other squadrons. But that would mean, of course, that the Black Sheep Squadron would be dismantled. Surely that could not happen. They had done too much. They had come too far. But it was in the lapse of the gods. Those being the brass. First, a major Henry Miller took over for Pappy, and his first act was to fight to make sure the black sheep stayed together. His first letter was to the commanding general of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing. Basically, he wrote that the morale, that magic that was the black sheep, would be destroyed if the squadron was sent hither and yon, filling gaps for others. Then General Moore, Pappy's supporter, added his weight to the letter. His note, in part, said, Do not split this group. War requirements took priority. Be that as it may, the decision was made. The men were sent in different directions on March 1st. The last 15 black sheep were sent to VMF 211. The black sheep squadron was no more. But it's worth noting that those guys, those misfits who came together under the grand misfit himself, had, in 84 days of combat, splashed 96 enemy planes, sank 28 vessels, all kinds, strafed 125 enemy land positions, and created eight aces. The world would not look upon their kind again. Going back to January 3rd, Boynton had managed to parachute out, but he hit the water pretty hard. Still, he reached for his May West, but it was hardly going to inflate as it had several bullet holes in it, which left the rubber raft. But Pappy knew that if he blew that up, he would be spotted for sure. No, for the first few hours, he would simply go underwater whenever an enemy plane flew over, and then he would start treading again. But the fatigue was starting to set in. Soon he would not be able to keep himself above the waves. There was only one thing for it. He would use the raft and hope for the best. But little does fate care about hope. Now that he was lying down and not having to exert himself to stay afloat, he looked over his wounds, and they were substantial. First, a chunk of skin was hanging from his scalp. That would have to be sewed up. Next, his left ankle was actually worse than what he thought it was. The pain made that abundantly clear. Further, his left ear was in a bad way, as were his shoulders and arms. For a wrestler who prided himself on his strength and ability, this was hard to swallow. And scary. After dozing off and on for about eight hours, a noise disturbed Pappy's peace. It was a submarine and in desperation he thought he saw Allied markings. But he was wrong. As it came closer, clearly it belonged to the enemy. So Boynton would be making his way to Rabaul, just not the way he thought it would happen. 
Once on land, he was blindfolded and taken to Imperial Japanese Navy headquarters, where he was questioned, and each question was followed by a slap to the head, which already hurt in a way he had never experienced before. Of the three teams that questioned Pappy, one interviewer, Edward Chikaki Honda, never hit Pappy. He simply asked him questions. Honda, it turned out, had been born on Hawaii, graduated high school there, and in 1929 was sent to Japan to study at the university. But then the war with China came along, and Honda, like thousands of others, was caught up in the whirlwind and placed in the military. Thus, Honda was not a super patriot who believed that all enemies deserved death after they served the empire in some capacity. Honda even advised Pappy to quit changing his answers. That's why he kept getting slapped. His story kept changing. Boynton recognized the wisdom in this and incorporated the advice into his responses. For this next part, Pappy simply behaved selfishly and unbecoming in an officer. When asked the name of his commander, Pappy at first lied, but then he did give a name, one Colonel Smoak, his old nemesis, the man who had made life hell during Pappy's first R&R with the black sheep. He even pointed out the position of Smoak's camp. Later after the war, Pappy smiled when it came to this part of his story. As he later wrote, I smiled to myself thinking, I would love to see that no good son of a bitch's face if it is at all possible for them, the Japanese, to get through. This, of course, meant that Smoak's camp would have been bombed and men could have died. But Pappy was simply focused on revenge, even in his current situation. Fortunately, Pappy's moral compass was not compromised, as Smoak nor his location was ever threatened by the enemy, which probably made it easier for Pappy to mention this in his book after the war. The first days of Pappy's captivity went by, and it did not get any better. He shared a cell with a fellow American, and they were given spoiled rice and soup that was barely anything more than water which is not what his body needed, given his wounds. And the quote-unquote Japanese doctor did little, or knew little, so the POWs were on their own as far as their wounds and health was concerned. Then Pappy was visited by malaria, which is no surprise, given his poor health and diet. But all that misery might end at any moment, for the Allies had not stopped bombing Rabaul. Indeed, Pappy could not help but smile, thinking all his troubles may suddenly end, thanks to a bomb made somewhere in the good old U.S. of A. But then one of Pappy's interrogators, Honda, re-entered the picture. As he was influenced by Western ways from his youth, Honda, again, was not a super patriot, ready and willing to die for the emperor. He would rather live, thank you very much, and he, along with everyone else, knew that the Americans were only getting closer. If the Japanese stayed here much longer, they would either die or become prisoners themselves. And considering how they, the Japanese, had treated their POWs, some kind of retribution had to be in the works. 
No, what Honda needed was to get away from Robau, and this famous American flyer was his way out. Thinking through his plan, first Honda suggested to his superiors that Boeington could be used as a propaganda tool for the war. That was a lot better for the Empire than leaving him here to rot or get killed or be freed by his own people. Next, he suggested that he, Honda, be the one to take him away from here, as he spoke English. For whatever reason, perhaps as it was February 1944, and the war was unwinnable by the Empire at this point, the officers at Rabaul agreed to this. That February 16th, Honda climbed aboard a Betty medium bomber, along with Pappy, a PBY pilot, Commander John Arkbuckle, Pilot Captain Charles Taylor, Corsair Pilot Major Don Boyle, and two officers, one from Australia and one from New Zealand. They all had their hands tied and were blindfolded before being led on the plane. Their first flight would take them to Truck in the Caroline Islands, about 800 miles to the northwest. One armed guard was aboard, but as the POWs were bound and blind and wounded, they were not expected to give any trouble. These POWs were lucky, in a way. Standard Japanese military policy was to question a prisoner, get all information possible, and then kill them. Simple, clean, effective. But as Honda strove to save himself, he had also saved Pappy, who probably wasn't appreciative at the moment. In fact, he had wanted to try to overpower the guard and take control of the plane, but the other POWs talked him out of it, and they were probably right. Still, Pappy was pissed at their cowardliness. At least, that's how he saw it. Boynton later wrote of this moment, None of my black sheep would have talked like that, and everything would have been so damned easy if I only had five of them here with me. Perhaps, but the odds are it would have went badly for the Allied POWs. As the bomber landed on truck, Honda saved Pappy's life a second time. Just after the plane touched down, fighters and bombers from an American carrier nearby hit the location. Soon bombs were exploding around the landing strip. Honda grabbed his charges and rushed them to a slit trench. This time, he did not have to try very hard to convince them to lay down. Pappy went horizontal, pushed his blindfold up enough to see a Navy F-6F Hellcat fighter tear up the place, including the landing strip, and several parked aircraft nearby. He smiled, even though he realized it would only take one bomb to kill them all. When the Allied planes left, Pappy and company were put into a cell for the next 16 days and practically forgotten receiving very little food or water, which only made Pappy's condition worse, as he was still struggling with the serious wounds that had yet to be administered to properly. The men's tongues swelled from a lack of hydration, that and the heat and the humidity. Then Honda stepped in again to save his charges from more beatings. He told the officers on truck that these men had already been beaten, and had already given up all important information, that they were being taken to the home islands to serve as propaganda pieces. This seemed to satisfy the guards who had been looking forward 
to bashing these men about, as their comrades were currently being killed by the thousands by the Allies. On the 16th day, Honda had them bound and blindfolded again and put on a plane. First, they flew to Saipan, and there a warrant officer, also seeing how the war was going, gave the POWs their first decent food. But no medical attention was forthcoming. Then they flew on to Iwo Jima, and on March 7th, they were flown to Yokohama, about 50 miles south of Tokyo. There, a truck took them to Ofuna, a suburb of Yokohama. Honda told the men, as they were unbound, that this area was like their Hollywood, that Japan made their movies here. Oh, this might be all right then, thought Pappy. Perhaps, but little did he know that he and the others would be here for the next 13 months. As for daily life, Pappy got the gist of what it would really be like here when he recognized a man that he had served with on the USS Yorktown and shouted out a greeting. The man not only did not answer, he didn't even look up. As Honda explained it, you're not allowed to speak until you have been in camp for a while, he said, and then the guards will then give you permission. So much for living in Japan's version of Hollywood.